Earlier this month, someone leaked Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion to overturn Roe versus Wade. In the 233-year history of the Supreme Court, there have been a handful of leaks. Not many, but some, including news about Roe versus Wade in 1973. It was leaked about an hour before. But this is the first time that a leak has included the draft decision. In other words, this leak, unprecedented. As a senator... Today's guest has watched the collapse from the inside. Before he was a senator, he served as a clerk for Justice Samuel Alito when Justice Alito was still a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. In his latest book, Saving Nine, it is a must read the fight against the left's audacious plan to pack the Supreme Court and destroy American liberty. This is probably the most perfectly timed book that I've ever seen. It documents the left's mission to pack the Supreme Court, their latest attempt to politicize it uh, and uh, and destroy it. But the Supreme Court isn't supposed to be political. It's uh, it's something you feel when you walk up those stairs or should feel As today's guest writes in Saving Nine, when climbing those stairs, you find yourself leaving the swamp of Washington and often the petty political conflicts that abound behind. And you enter a higher plane of existence. That's what you're supposed to feel. But once again, politicians, activists on the left are making exceptions for themselves. Today, fascinating conversation on the Glenn Beck podcast, Senator Mike Lee. It's getting hot outside uh, and really, at least in Texas, like about a thousand degrees once you fire up the grills. Uh, but with summer upon us, I am I am willing to for a steak. I am willing to fire up the grill and stand in the heat. If you are looking for the perfect cuts of meat to cook this year, I know I buy the meat sometimes in my family. I went us out a couple of weeks ago and I looked at the price of beef, ground beef. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Good Ranchers is the place to get American beef, chicken, seafood. They sell 100 percent American meat. Ship it right to your door. Right now, they're giving away two free 18 ounce prime center cut ribeyes. To every person that uses my code, Glenn, G-L-E-N-N. That's two pounds of prime ribeye steaks added to your order with no cost. With Father's Day almost here, summer stretching out before us. What's not to love about this? Oh, I know. Because the price of meat is so high and it's going to keep going up. Uh Uh-uh. Before they run out of ribeyes, may I suggest you come uh, and get those ribeyes and you sign up. You want to be the first when it comes to good ranchers. They deliver the best American farms uh, farm uh, from the best American farms and ranches right to your door and they lock in the price. Yeah. Yeah. Goodranchers.com slash Glenn G-L-E-N-N. Make sure you use it at checkout and get your two free 18 ounce ribeyes. Good friend, Mike Lee. How are you? Doing great. It's good to be with you. Um, Your book is, um, I think you have taken it and you you can be at any level and read it. Not know much, 
about the Supreme Court, not know much about even our history and why um, what's happened in the last hundred plus years. Uh, or you can be somebody like you and know a lot and still learn something. I think that's uh, that's a lot because um, the Supreme Court is so important right now. And I don't think most people have any idea what it's supposed to do or how our government even works. That's right. And it's important for us to understand what it is and what it isn't right. in order to comprehend it. And that's Especially why. because there are people on the streets protesting, you know, and I think it's only going to get worse. Yes. And uh, we have to know what the facts are. That's right. And th- that's why I dedicated an entire chapter simply to explaining what the court is and what it isn't. In chapter one of Saving Nine, I talk about the fact that it has a limited role. It, it operates in a, a rear view mirror sort of way. Its mm-hmm. job is to decide what the law says, wh- what the words enacted into law meant at the time they became law. So let me let me ask you a couple of things on that. Um, it, it is the weakest. It's not three equal branches right it's it's weaker than the other two it's just a check on the other two by far the weakest of the three branch just a check on the other two and and really even narrower than a check its job is to resolve disputes the law says x and we disagree about what x means and which way the law cuts Uh, you and i can have that resolved in court ultimately the supreme court if it's federal law okay so the supreme court is supposed to you just said supposed to look back at what these words meant when they were written. Yes. That is a originalist point of view. Yes. Then there's the contextualist, right? Is that right? Yeah, some would call them purposivists, uh, but people who would say, let's look at what the purpose of the law is. Others still would, if they're looking at provisions of the Constitution, talk about a living Constitution. Correct. One that ought to change what they mean by that. Because the Constitution can change. Article right. 5 of the Constitution provides the mechanism for doing that. But that's but they an want to change amendment. it the court. That's right. an amendment that's to the an Constitution. Um, the, is this unusual as a nation that we, we look to the meaning of what it originally meant? No. So it, the rest of the world does that as well. Well, uh, look, I, I don't concern myself with how other courts operate. What I know is that our... Supreme Court functions under our Constitution, and our Constitution places defined limits around judicial authority. And so within the United States, we, we do and we always have sought to try to define what the statute means within our court system. And what that means is you have to look at the original public meaning, the understanding of the public of what those words meant at the time they were drafted and put either into the law or into the Constitution. All right. So let's let's use a real life example, because so many people today are saying, you know, uh, this isn't this is a democracy. And and how can the minority rule the majority? Well, first of all, they're talking usually about the Senate. You lost 51 to 49. That's a majority. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and um, we are not a majority rule kind of country, are we? No, we're, we're not. And most of the time when people raise that argument about the Senate, that the Senate is anti-democratic, they're talking about the fundamental structure of the Constitution that they don't like. Mm-hmm. What they're saying is, theoretically, it's possible to secure a majority of the votes in the Senate 
without those states holding the majority in the Senate, representing a majority of the population of the United States. Yeah, that was the whole idea. That was the whole point. We were going to have one uh, chamber of the legislative branch that would uh, be allocated according to population. Mm -hmm. We've got 435 seats currently. Those are allocated according to population, revised every 10 years. The Senate was always to be a place where each state would be represented equally. In fact, if there's one kind of constitutional amendment that's preemptively unconstitutional, you can't change that feature of the Constitution that entitles each state to equal representation. But they did change the Senate the way it was elected. The way they're chosen, yes. Because it was never meant to be a public uh, election, right? Well, right. Your, your, your state house selected. Yes, Prior to 1913, 1913 was when the 17th Amendment was ratified. And uh, prior to that time, U.S. senators were chosen by state legislatures. Mm -hmm. Since 1913, with the ratification of the 17th Amendment, they've been elected popularly within each state. So was that a good change, do you think? Look, it is it is water under the bridge. I do think we lost something. I think Uh, we I I think we also importantly gain something if you look at it from a progressive view we gained a national look instead of a local look that the idea was that person uh is selected by the state and is just doing what's right for his or her state right and accountable subject to being fired by the state lawmakers within that state correct they were there to represent the states as such And so since then, we haven't had that. Not coincidentally, we've seen a drift away from the Senate looking out for the interests of the states as states. Okay. So everything began to change really in the progressive era. And the one thing I think, Mike, I love about you is you hate Woodrow Wilson as much as I do. Um, And and FDR, no love lost for FDR especially when it comes to the Supreme Court. So can, can you give us a brief, because you you spent a lot of time on FDR, and I, and I want to get into that because I think it relates to today a great deal, as you point out. Um, can you tell us who we were before the progressive era? Uh, like, I think the Supreme Court at the beginning met in a closet uh, in the basement of the Capitol. Pretty much. Yeah. And it was FDR that changed that and gave them this big grand building, which changed people's perception of of the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. So it, to be clear, uh, the, the wheels were set in motion prior to FDR's presidency for them to have their own building. Mm. But but yeah, it gave them a, a, a sense of who they were and perhaps a sense of jealousy, not wanting uh, to have their parade rained upon. But yeah, prior to the progressive era, uh, you had a country in which we recognized top to bottom that the federal government was not a general purpose national government. Hmm. This was one of the most fundamental principles of the American Revolution, and that was built into the Constitution. We And then guaranteed or tried to guarantee with the Bill of Rights. Yes, culminating with the 10th Amendment that made abundantly clear, made expressly clear what was implicit in the text of the original Constitution, which is that the federal government would have powers that James Madison described as few and defined. 
And those reserved to the states were numerous and indefinite. Most government power was not to be exercised in Washington because this is why we fought the revolution. Mm -hmm. We weren't just tired of singing God Save the King at the time. We weren't just tired of having a monarch. It was much more than that. It was about the fact that we were subject to a large, distant national government that knew no boundaries around its authority and didn't respect local autonomy. So, again, let's go back to what looks to be... um, the verdict may be um, the verdict on Roe versus Wade. And I want to get into all of the details on that. But if I'm not mistaken, the, the walk away from me reading the decision is this is highly controversial and different states and different populations have a very different look at it. And it's not in the Constitution. So it should be decided by the people, not a court of unelected men and women. Yes. Right? That, that is exactly right. A, okay. a 10-year-old, when properly informed, <laughs> right. can answer that question. And in fact, I know that because as a 10-year-old, the first conversation I remember having with my dad about Roe versus Wade, uh, he seemed pleased when I said, eh, that's kind of strange because it seems to me that this is a legislative decision, not a judicial one, and not to be state, <laughs> not federal. He was happy that uh, yeah, yeah, one my of kid's on the right attention. track. Yeah. Uh, he'll never date, but he's on the right track. <laughs> um, the... Uh, Okay, so if I'm read, am I reading it? Explain how I, I I I'm misinterpreting this. It seems to me that they're saying this is not in the Constitution, so it it's the Tenth Amendment. It's got to go back to the states, right? Yeah. But the first thing that people in Congress and the Senate did was try to make a federal law on it. If it's not in the Constitution and it belongs with the 10th Amendment, can Congress on this or anything else pick that up and make it a federal law? They shouldn't. Uh, they, they, but they, they shouldn't, can. And they wouldn't be able to. But for the, the deviation away from the constitutional norm that we saw during the progressive era that we've been stuck with ever since. So in theory, you could see Congress adopting a very aggressive reading of the Commerce Clause, uh, mm-hmm. one that I talk about at some length in, yeah. in chapters four and five of Saving Nine. They could, in theory, address that. They could also, Congress could adopt restrictions on abortion when it comes to federal funding of Planned Parenthood, federal funding of uh, other programs within the United States and overseas, the so-called Hyde Amendment and Mexico City Mm -hmm. uh, policy. Uh, Things like that are plainly within the federal government's jurisdiction. But yeah, this was interesting because you have the Supreme Court saying this now needs to be sent back to the people's elected lawmakers. Typically, that's going to mean the states. I mean, we've got general power over um, you know, uh, uh, U.S. military installations, District mm-hmm. of Columbia and things like that. But for the most part, this ought to be decided by state lawmakers, not federal ones. The Democrats swoop in right after this opinion leaks and they say, we're going to make this federal by statute. We're going to reinstate Roe by statute. And they tried to do that, but they went 10 steps further. Their version of this was not just Roe type protections. It was any and every abortion up to the very moment of birth is now lawful and no restrictions, uh, time, place, manner, proximity to hospital, uh, uh, health and safety regulations. None of those can apply. No bans on sex selective abortions or abortions targeting Down syndrome babies. Mm. You can't do any of that. Mm. Fortunately, it failed. But they think this is somehow the imperative 
of of the world to do this. And I I find that stunning. By the way, they're substantially to the left of where the American people are. Oh, they're way out of step. And I hate to say way to the left. They're just way out of step. The American people, it's like 12 percent of the nation is for that. Right. Right. Um, And, you know. Well, I can get 12 percent of the population to agree that we never went to the moon. That's right. right. That's right. It, it, because most people intuitively understand, regardless of their own religious beliefs uh, about when life begins or their own other personal beliefs, most people, even those who believe in abortion as something that they want to protect, will acknowledge that there comes a point as you get closer and closer to full term. Right. That this becomes indistinguishable from infanticide. Yes. Some of us would draw that line a lot uh, closer to the beginning than others. But almost all Americans will say there does come a point where you've got to protect that unborn human life because it is a human. It is a person. If you're one of the millions of Americans that suffer from pain every day, I want you to listen up. There is hope, and it comes in the form of Relief Factor. Every day, testimonials come across my studio desk of people who have tried Relief Factor for their pain and gotten their life back. I know they're true because I've met many of them, and only a couple of years ago, I was suffering from pain that was about to make me retire, honestly. Uh, and then I started taking Relief Factor because my wife told me to or she wouldn't listen to me whine anymore. Anymore, So I started taking it, not expecting it to work, but I got my life back. I couldn't do this just a few years ago. If just getting through your day is a challenge due to pain, please try Relief Factor. Go to relieffactor.com right now. Relieffactor.com and th- try their three-week quick start. Do it now. Let's go back on how the government uh, and we can we can either. Can we start with the three musketeers and the and the four horsemen? I don't think most people even know anything about that. Yeah. Look, it's it's very important. And and I talk about this in uh, chapter chapters three, four and five of Saving Nine about the fact that at the time that FDR, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, was president, as he was beginning his second term in office, he had suffered a series of setbacks, uh, setbacks by the Supreme Court, because it was under FDR that we started expanding. FDR said, look, I'm not content with having the federal government be a a limited purpose government. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have the power to solve all sorts of social problems. I wanted to regulate all kinds of markets, Uh, uh, labor, manufacturing, agriculture, mining. These are all things that have historically been regulated at the state level. I don't want to do it that anymore, that way anymore, because we're in a crisis, the Great Depression. So in a crisis. Before we say a crisis, he defined it with emergency powers, right? Yeah. Then this all of this stuff started with just him seizing the power away from Congress under emergency powers. Yeah, there was some of that. But a lot of this he did through statute. Uh, because th- the same framework wasn't in place as is now, t- giving him power to just issue executive orders willy-nilly. Mm. Uh, so all of this started with statutes, where he was trying to regulate this and that, labor, manufacturing, agriculture, mining, all these things that, while economic, were not interstate commerce. He got smacked down in case after case, uh, cases like Carter versus Carter Coal Company, 
uh, Schechter Poultry, all these cases where the Supreme Court said, you've overreached, you can't do this. He got tired of it. By the beginning of his second term, he had had it. So back to your question. You had these, um, um, loosely speaking, three camps on the Supreme Court. You had his closest allies, who we call the Three Musketeers. We have his arch enemies, who we call the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. <laughs> My favorite of whom was George Sutherland, uh, a Utah, the only Utah ever to serve on the Supreme Court, and a graduate of Brigham Young University, uh, uh, who had previously been a, a senator from Utah. They were steadfast proponents of the Constitution, and they weren't about to let FDR just run over them. And then you had two sort of unaffiliated, uh, unaffiliated justices, those who were holding their cards close. Um, and uh, uh, those two uh, were, were Charles Evans Hughes and Owen Roberts. They were sort of floating out there in the middle. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew which way they were going to go. Mm -hmm. So there was this constant tension. A lot of these cases had been decided against FDR's interest. Uh, because of the fact that uh, the two floaters, or some combination of them, joined with the, the four horsemen, and they toppled uh, pieces of legislation that were, in fact, unconstitutional. That's what led us to FDR's court packing plan. That's why he did it. He was tired of those people doing it. So what did he do? He started up by trying to delegitimize the court, certain members of the court in particular, especially the four horsemen. He tried to denigrate the, whole, the court as a whole as an institution. And it culminated, of course, in his introduction and support for legislation that would give him the power to pack the court, appointing additional justices. If we can go back in time, and you can read it in Time magazine, you can read it in uh, uh, New York Times um, of the era. We try to go back and we we could say, oh, FDR is a fascist or whatever. At that time, fascism and communism weren't, didn't have the stigma that they have right. now because they were new. They were and, modern. Yeah, and hadn't killed everybody yet, okay? Right. Um, and so it wasn't a bad thing. I, I give the sum of the early progressives uh, some benefit of the doubt because it was new and it was scientific. Uh, you know, it, it's early algorithms, you know, uh, and uh, and so they took this on. He really thought, I think, that it was the new way to rule just through managerial um, a managerial process before he gets in. How much damage had been done? Did we have these big um uh, administrative arms? No, 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 not at all. It, it was anathema to the structure of the Constitution. It didn't work. That's why you had to do some real massive surgery and, and, and not therapeutic surgery, destructive surgery on the system in order to even allow this. We did not have an administrative state. What we had was a system that said, you've got three branches of government. I think they're best described as uh, two pens and a sword. You've got the legislative branch that says what shall be, what will be uh, going forward, which sets the ground rules. You've got the executive branch that wields the sword. And then you've got the judicial branch that wields a different kind of pen, a backward-looking pen to decide what the law meant as of the time it was put into law 
and on that basis resolve disputes. So the pen is veto? Yeah, no, the... the or we, sorry, the sword yeah, is the, veto? The sword is the veto, but so the, there's one feature of the legislative power that the president has, and that's the veto pen. But aside from his veto pen, he does also wield that pen, the executive branch is the sword, meaning that's where the action is carried out. It's the executive branch that has the power to enforce the law. Okay. And so my point is this, all this administrative bureaucracy, it's all a creature uh, that lurks within the executive branch. But when Congress passes a law, it has the sole lawmaking power. Article 1, Section 1, Clause 1, and Article 1, Section 7 make clear that you cannot pass a federal law, you cannot make a federal law, except it's through Congress. Mm -hmm. And Article 1, Section 7 makes clear that the only way to do that is you have to pass the same proposed law, a bill, in the House and in the Senate, the same text. That's got to be then submitted to the president for signature, veto, or acquiescence. So unless you do that, there is no federal law. Hey, hang on. And it's my understanding that the veto is really, is is supposed to be exercised by the president if he feels it's unconstitutional, yes, right? It, it it's not be. like, I don't agree with any of this. Right. Right? Right. Exactly. The, the president's job is supposed to be that. And a guard and, for the Constitution, yeah. the first guard. Right. And until relatively, until the last few decades, it was understood that the president should independently assess constitutionality. George Washington made an inquiry, I believe it was in 1793. Uh, he wanted to find out prospectively whether some of the proposed actions within his administration were constitutional. He reached out to the court seeking an answer. Uh, I talk about this in, uh, in chapter one of Saving Nine. They uh, responded by pointing out, look, we can't do this. That's an advisory opinion. You're asking us to give an advisory opinion. We can't do that. We can only decide ripe cases and controversies between individuals after government uh, has acted in one way or another. Mm. Uh, uh, my, my point is uh, there is simply to say that because of that separation of powers, every officer within the federal government who's required to take an oath under the Constitution is expected to do this. It's only in modern times that we've started to think of the Constitution as if it were a judicial document. It's owned, it's defined in every instance by the nine lawyers wearing robes on the Supreme Court. I don't mean to denigrate them or their role, only to point out what the court is and what it isn't. It's not there to decide what it says in every instance. It's just there to decide specific disputes. All right. So um, when the um, when the court started to go awry, um, it, it was disputes over things like coal companies um, and uh, can we regulate them? The Commerce Clause was forever changed. And I don't remember the case, but you talk about it with a farmer, right? Yes. The wheat. Yeah. Wickard versus Filburn. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, 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 horrible decision, but yeah. a decision that highlights uh, the problem with this. This is why we have OSHA and everything else in our lives, right? Yes. Okay. That's what explain, leads to all of it. Explain that. Okay. So <clears throat> what is the Commerce Clause? Yep. And then how did it change? The Commerce Clause, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, gives Congress the power to regulate trade or commerce 
between the states, uh, with foreign nations, and with the Indian tribes. Uh, it was always understood, it was understood at the time as giving Congress the power to make sure that interstate commercial transactions could take place uninhibited by state authority. It was there to protect against economic balkanization. We didn't want states erecting trade barriers such that we couldn't function with a national because economy. Because we were a, we were really 13 separate countries. Yes. And at the time before um, the Constitution, there, the, the federal government couldn't solve debates or, or, or disputes between the states, right? Yeah, that's right. Right. All right. So after the revolution, we won the war. We put in place this document called the Articles of Confederation. Mm-hmm. It was a very loose, mm-hmm. it was almost a treaty between 13 right. nations. And it didn't have, for instance, the states had power to print their own currency, which was then also a trade problem. That's why the Constitution says only the federal government can mint money. Right. Right. And they were taxing each other's goods, mm-hmm. which made them like 13 separate isolated economies. We right. couldn't survive that way. It's the principal reason why the Founding Fathers converged, convened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, was to deal with that very problem. So they gave Congress this power. For the next 150 years or so, it was understood that that gave Congress the power to regulate uh, interstate commercial transactions and channels and instrumentalities of interstate commerce. So what did that mean at the time, like to uh, regulate interstate transactions? It mostly meant that they could get rid of, they could preempt out state laws that were erecting trade barriers uh, okay. against interstate commerce. They could also regulate things like interstate canals or roadways to make sure that uh, commerce didn't get stuck, that states weren't interfering with it that way. Uh, and for the most part, it was just understood that that's what it meant. And this is one of the things that kept uh, the federal government within its lane is that none of the enumerated powers in Article One, Section 8 was expanded as being limitless. Because the minute you have that, then the Tenth Amendment means nothing. Mm-hmm. The minute you have that, you're no longer of a limited purpose federal government. You're a general purpose national government. So all of a sudden, FDR comes along. And he says things like labor, manufacturing, agriculture, mining, always subject to state regulation, not federal, except in rare instances where we're talking about uh, one of those activities inside of the District of Columbia, Mm. for example. But he said, I want to save America from the Great Depression. To do that, I need these sweeping new powers. Started pushing the limits of the Commerce Clause. The court pushed back and said, no, that's not what it means. And that's when FDR said, I'm going to pack the court. I'm going to remake the court in my own image. I'm going to give myself authority to appoint more justices, not because they're understaffed, but because I want to change the outcome for my own political purposes. So that's where we get to this moment. I pinpoint it even before the 1942 case of Wickard v. Filburn. We can talk about that more Mm -hmm. in a minute. The seeds for that case were, were planted uh, seven years earlier, uh, five years earlier, in a case called NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel Company. Mm-hmm. Decided April 12th, 1937. Incidentally, right in the middle of the debate regarding FDR's court packing plan. FDR wanted to delegitimize, denigrate, and ultimately change the court to its benefit. And that's when Justice, Associate Justice Owen Roberts flipped his vote he had previously been with the four horsemen 
and mm. standing up for limits on, on federal power. He switched his vote at the last minute and redefined the Commerce Clause to give Congress the power to regulate anything, everything that had what a an effect surprise, his last name Congress. was Roberts. Yeah, it, it, it happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, these things were inherited. Uh, maybe they're related somehow. Are they related? Are those two? I, I've, I've never checked. I'm going to look into this. Yeah. Now. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah. But, but regardless, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And so then um, in the case with the farmer years later, that's a pushback. Yeah. In the case with the farmer, they had pushed it so far. This guy named Roscoe Filburn. Roscoe Filburn uh, was a, a farmer in uh, what's today a suburb of Dayton, Ohio. He was fined many thousands of dollars, a lot of money in, in those days. Uh, his, his offense against the federal government, he was not a kidnapper, not a bank robber, uh, not a smuggler. No, he, he grew too much wheat. He grew more wheat than the experts uh, in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, using their authority under the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1939, thought was appropriate for any farmer to grow. Too much wheat. So they fined him thousands of dollars. He had a good lawyer, and he decided to challenge this law. But he said, look, um, the wheat that I grew in excess of the federal grain production quota that you gave me never entered interstate commerce. In fact, it never entered commerce at all. It never left my farm. I used that wheat, the wheat that I grew in excess of the limit you gave me, to feed my family, my animals, to use the remainder as seed for the next season. The Supreme Court in this act of, uh, of Franklin D. Roosevelt induced post-court packing uh, uh, consolidation of power mentality. The Supreme Court said, ah, but by growing that wheat and using it on your farm, you still affected interstate commerce because you would have otherwise had to buy that on the open market. And just like butterflies flapping their wings in the Amazon have an effect mm. on wind currents in Florida, uh, so too your failure to buy that incremental wheat on the open market is subject to Congress's control because it substantially affects interstate commerce. What this shows is that since 1937, certainly since 1942, when that case was decided, but really since 1937, Congress can regulate basically anything as long as it can identify some impact on interstate commerce. Throughout the whole world, the leading cause of death is abortion. In the U.S., murder has become a wholesale business since Roe versus Wade. We've killed over 63 million children. Nearly 25% of pregnant mothers don't choose life. There's a ministry out there. It's called Preborn. And Preborn and Blaze Media have partnered up to rescue 50,000 babies from abortion in 2022. And it's really easy to do. They're the direct competitor to Planned Parenthood, the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the U.S. So they know when you let a woman see her baby or hear the heartbeat, she's 80 percent more likely to choose life for her baby. I've talked to some of these remarkable mothers and their children uh, it is this is the best thing you can do really is when the mother chooses life. We all win. We all win. By the way, they also uh, provide maternity, baby clothes, diapers, car seats, counseling, all free of charge. Preborn has a passion. And I know you do, too. 
I want you to donate now. Use the keyword baby or go to preborn.com slash Glenn. Preborn.com slash Glenn. So let me go here. This is a strange jump, but um, the Supreme Court just a few days ago um, sided with Biden on the, did I write it down? The, yeah, um, the, the social cost of carbon um, because of wildfires, sea rise, hurricanes, floods. Um, they say there is a there is a uh, a real social cost to carbon. Uh, and so they it's going to allow them to regulate everything, everything. Supreme Court, it was stopped lower court. And the Supreme Court just said, no, we agree with that. Yeah. What does that mean? So I haven't read this particular case yet. I mm-hmm. assume it involves the EPA and its uh, authorities under the Clean yeah, Air Act. All of it. Um, <clears throat> this is the natural outgrowth of the cases we just discussed. Because what happened, and this was all a feature, not a bug to FDR. Mm-hmm. This was about consolidating power, not just to Washington, but also to him personally, to the presidency directly. Because once Congress had this virtually unlimited power to legislate on any topic they wanted, as long as they could connect it to interstate commerce, he knew, as turned out to be the case, that Congress couldn't handle all the ins and outs, all the painstaking line drawing that has to be done with legislation. So Congress would, and ultimately did, delegate these difficult decisions to executive branch agencies to the point where we now pass laws that say, in effect, we shall have good law in Area X, and we hereby delegate to Department Y in the executive branch the power to make, interpret, and enforce federal law. I and rem- that's what happened in that case you're describing. I, I remember um, reading Obamacare, and page after page after page says uh, this will be defined and enforced by the uh, Secretary of, of Health and Human Services. I'm like, that's insane. Yeah. It is. And as I recall, it may have been, I think it was about a thousand times in the Affordable Care Act when they had delegated that out. Right. And it happens every day. And that's why in our government, more and more, it seems, you can't pin anybody down. You can't blame anybody because you don't know who did that. Right. It's some faceless bureaucrat. Right. And, And that's why in the case that you're describing... And again, I haven't read this one. I assume it has something to do yeah. with the Clean Air Act and EPA's mm-hmm. enforcement of the Clean Air Act. But in effect, it's a slight oversimplification. But what Congress has done is to say, we shall have clean air, something we all want. We hereby declare as Congress that we shall have clean air. We hereby delegate to the EPA the power to make and interpret and enforce rules that are in effect laws that tell us what clean air is, what pollution is, what amounts to a pollutant, what happens to polluters. And at that point, everything is in their power. Everything is in their discretion. And then when people are harmed by this, if all of a sudden they adopt a radical view of what a pollutant is and they uh, uh, adopt some new definition, people come to members of Congress and complain. Members of Congress, including some who may have voted for the law in question, will beat their chest and say, yeah, those barbarians at EPA. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write them a harshly worded letter Mm -hmm. as if that were our job. Mm Mm-hmm. But still, we continue to delegate fundamentally legislative power. 
So that's why I explain in, in, in Saving Nine why this is so much, it's about so much more than court packing. What they did the last time they tried to pack the Supreme Court allowed FDR to consolidate power in Washington and more power within the executive branch. So when I say, um, you know, I, I said to President Trump, you'll, you'll only have four years. If you win, you'll have four years. You have to fire and shut down all of this, all these administrators, you know. And he said, can't do it. I can't do it without with a Congress or I mean, a Senate run by uh, Mitch McConnell and congressmen like I had last time. He said, I need people on this on the same track that will because they have the the power to fire um, and close things down. But you talk like that. And most Americans feel like you're a nut. We have to have all of these administrators. Yes. They say we have to have the administrators because they have confidence in those administrators' expertise. You see, this is part of the progressive vision. The progressive vision is we're going to leave governing and governance decisions to the experts because we, the unwashed masses, are incapable of such action. The problem is their version of the law and of lawmaking is unconstitutional, and we have to be prepared to call it out as such. It is also antithetical to, I mean, one of the things that I loved about when we were constructing the jury trial is how Thomas Jefferson, there was, you know, a debate, should we get the experts to be the jurors? And Thomas Jefferson said, no, I'd rather have farmers than scholars. There's something about a man who has his hand in the dirt all the time that roots him into truth and common sense. And that's true. We had a, you know, I think it was, I think it was Jefferson and then again Churchill that said, you can always trust the American people to do the right thing. After they've done the wrong thing, they wake up and go, ah, we'll do the right thing. This new system uh, sees people outside of government as flawed and idiots. But anybody in these positions is genius. Yes. And in effect, we've now replicated the very type of system that we despised when our national government was based in London. It's consolidated, relatively limitless, run by people who are experts detached from the people, relatively unaccountable to the people. And that's a problem. When Venezuela packed the court... Uh, I think they have now 42 judges. What happens to countries that pack courts like that? Their courts become a rubber stamp, a rubber stamp for the political authorities in charge. Uh, And Venezuela is not the only example of this. I mean, at the same time, FDR was experimenting with court packing here. Uh, uh, Other efforts, uh, one way or another, to give military figures dictators control of their system of government uh, in Italy and in Germany. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hitler and Mussolini were doing their own things to try to throw off the objectivity, neutrality and independence of their court system. So this is just what you do if you regard yourself as having a a mandate from from God, a mandate uh, uh, from principles of whatever uh, ambitions you have. It's what you do. You consolidate power. Because you're right and nobody else gets it. 
That's what you have to do. You can't have an independent, neutral judiciary and be a tyrant. It doesn't work. Which people would self-select. Right now, I think our problem is, especially the left, but there are those on the right, too. I'm going to force everybody to live my way and the way I want. I'm going to force the people in Texas to, to live the way that that California lives. Well, I don't live in California for a reason. Right. You know, it's got the greatest weather. Who wouldn't live in Colorado in, in California if you could, if it wasn't insane. Right. And I don't mind Californians and San Francisco. Do what you want. Poop in the streets all you want. I'm not going to come and visit and I won't live there. You know what I mean? But that was kind of the, the genius of this system that we're all little laboratories. It's like, I didn't have a problem with Mitt Romney's stupid healthcare up in Boston. I mean, intellectually I do, but I never spoke out against it for Massachusetts. You want to do that? Do that. Right. Except now we're on the hook for people. Now, if you do a bad idea, the federal government's going to come in and bail you out. And I'm paying for that. Well, I could have had the sunshine and the high taxes, you know, and just been part of California if I if I wanted it. I I wanted to live in a place that was sane and knew that this financially is going to be a wreck at some point. That's right. None of this works unless you adhere to the central promise of the Constitution, which is to say we're going to allow you to govern yourselves on most issues locally. We will join together. We will have a unified government hitting with a closed fist at a national level only with respect to those areas that we're going to define as national, which are narrow. Trademarks, copyrights and patents, interstate and foreign trade, military matters, granting letters of mark and reprisal, immigration laws, bankruptcy laws. That's about it. Um, you talk a lot about the, the Commerce Clause, but there's something else that you are working, because I've, I've been thinking, we're seeing a lot of things change in the Supreme Court. I mean, I'm seeing the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I think I've slipped through a wormhole. When did they start making sense? After four years of the Trump presidency, we got some really good nominees on that court. Uh, people like my friend Ryan Nelson on the Ninth Circuit from Idaho, um, uh, champions of liberty who, uh, and people who believe first and foremost in the Constitution and in their oath to it. They believe that their job is to interpret the law based on what it says rather than what it means. It's made a huge difference. Huge difference. Huge difference. Um, but it's causing... Uh, consternation with the left of course who has had the courts their way for quite some time uh that will force everybody and and now they're saying the courts have changed and they're saying no you, you don't have the right to to do that can you explain what a natural right is and how you don't have to believe in god for a right yeah we believe fundamentally that our, our, our rights exist. They exist in the abstract. I believe, and I, and I believe you believe, that our rights come from God. Mm -hmm. Whether you believe in God or not, there are certain rights that just exist because they are there, because we exist. Those rights 
aren't given to us. They're not uh, uh, a generous bestowal by government. They just exist. And so uh, one of the things the Constitution does is... And explain what inalienable means. Inalienable, something that can't be taken away. Uh, in, in this context, when we speak of rights, we should speak of rights in the sense that we're identifying things that the government can't do to you, not things the government must provide to you. That when we talk of those things as rights... That's, that's a, not it. That's not it. It's the things that, that nature's God or nature... Right. Right. So if it's happening in the animal kingdom, a bear can maul another animal or a animal that happens to be a man, maul them to death in their cave because you walked in going, I want to pet the baby bear. Right. That's a natural right. Well, that's a natural law. If you walk in. Yeah. A natural law, Mm -hmm. which gives us the natural right. Correct. Right. And you don't need God to tell you or any politician. Everybody knows. Of course you walk into that and they're going to maul you to death. And if the bear knew how to make a gun and use a gun, he would probably shot you. Right. And if you've got a weapon and the means by which to defend yourself, you have a natural right to defend yourself against a beast, against a machine, against other humans. Right. Okay. So that's what natural rights are. Yeah. Okay. So um, now go back to what we were discussing on how you know what a how you know what a right is, for instance, everybody's saying Roe versus Wade, um, I have a right to an abortion. And the Supreme Court said that's not anywhere yeah. in the Constitution. Yeah, we, we can't find that. Right. Anywhere. And if they can't find it, then it absolutely does belong to the state. Yeah. It, right. It, yeah. It, but it, it doesn't will, make it a right. That, that's right. That's right. The fact that you like something, the fact that you want it to be available to people or that you think it would be good policy for a given thing to be available. That's not a, a right. That is a, a policy choice. They are different things. Do you have a right to your own body? Yeah. I, I, the, the best description, the best summary of natural law um, derived from the, the writings of John Locke and others is in the Declaration of Independence itself. Inalienable rights, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, Elsewhere described in the due process clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, life, liberty, and property. Um, Government can't take those things away from you without due process of law. It can't interfere with those, and ultimately, it is the job of the government to protect life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. So... Those are, are, are natural rights. They, they exist because we exist. Now, in the Constitution, we have a number of rights that are spelled out in the Bill of Rights mm-hmm. that say things that the government can't do to us. Government can't tell you when, whether, how, uh, or how not you're going to worship or believe. Can't tell you what to say or not say. Can't take away your right to bear arms. Can't subject you to unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, 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 can't do those things without a warrant. Can't make you, can't you testify you against yourself. A, right. Can't try you without a jury unless exactly. you request it. Exactly. So those are those are our rights that we've specifically protected in the Constitution. And then the 14th, those are all uh, protections as against Congress, as against the federal government. Um, so... Can states violate no, those? No. See, that's, that, that's, that's where this gets interesting. 
The 14th Amendment comes along after the Civil War. And the 14th Amendment also contains a due process clause. Uh, you can't deprive someone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It was later interpreted to mean that most of the substantive protections in the Bill of Rights are incorporated states. by the 14th Amendment and, and applied by the 14th Amendment as operating against the states, meaning it's not just the federal government that can't mess with your freedom of religion or your freedom of speech or of the press or your Second Amendment rights. It's also the states. And so, but in examining those, in examining how this works and how the states are prohibited, the court will look to whether a particular right is deeply rooted in our nation's history and, and traditional, and, and whether they are essential to any scheme of ordered liberty. And so in going through, uh, my, my former boss, Justice Alito, for whom I clerked twice, first when he was on the Third Circuit and later when he was on the Supreme Court, wonderful human being, a real role model and mentor to me, did a masterful job of outlining all of this in his draft opinion that was leaked. And he explained, you know, going back through 700 years of Anglo-American legal jurisprudence, mm -hmm. there's nothing in there that identifies this as deeply rooted in our nation's history mm -hmm. and tradition or uh, essential to any scheme of ordered liberty. It doesn't meet any of those characteristics, nor is it even uttered or hinted at in any protection in the Bill of Rights or elsewhere in the Constitution. All right. So I, I look at this as two separate human rights. I believe the baby is a human, so those rights have to be protected, no matter what the mom wants to do, okay? Right. Um, and the left tries to make it about my body, my choice, which doesn't seem to apply when it's a vaccine. My question is, do you have a right to your body, or can the government say you are putting this in your body because if they can say you have to put it in your body, can't they say you absolutely uh, have a right to take something out of your body? Yeah, you have rights that inherit in the uh, protection of life, liberty and property. Those are liberty interests. You take something into your body, you know that it, whatever that thing is, if it's not supposed to be in there, it could kill you. That could take away your life. Uh, if you just prefer not to have that thing in your body, it's a pretty substantial invasion of your personal liberty and autonomy. And so the, 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 the government's going to have to make a pretty hefty showing as to why they need to be able to do that. So, yeah. The, Did they do that for COVID, do you think? Uh, no. Yeah. I, I mean, particularly with the COVID vaccine mandates. Right. Is one of the gravest usurpations of power I've ever seen. To look at presidential uh, abuses of power of this magnitude, we have to go back to 1952 to find a, uh, an analog where Truman seized every steel mill in America to support the Korean War effort. But even that doesn't even come close to how sweeping and dastardly this was. By the way, uh, President Biden, in ordering um, tens of millions of Americans to be vaccinated against their will, he swept aside the vertical protection we call federalism that makes most government powers state rather than federal. He swept aside the horizontal protection of separation of powers because he was exercising effectively legislative authority, not executive power. He doesn't, he's not a legislator. Uh, and he also violated 
uh, substantive protections in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, among others, uh, uh, freedom of religion. Many people have religious objections. He swept all those aside and said, look, um, I just really want everyone to get this. All right, because he declared an emergency or Donald Trump declared an emergency, right? Yeah. And so he could do that under emergency orders the or, way or, he interpreted or, or, it. Or, or so he claimed. Yeah, right. And, and the and what he claimed was the, the emergency temporary order, the most sweeping among those vaccine mandates was by OSHA. Mm-hmm. Uh, OSHA's enabling statute gives OSHA the power to issue these temporary emergency orders. Uh, and it's another example of bad lawmaking brought about by bad jurisprudence and enabled by the Supreme Court's unwillingness to stand up to things like this. So Congress passes a law saying OSHA will have the power to make good policy on safe mm-hmm. workplaces. And then they run roughshod even over what scarce limitations can be found in that. And the president directs OSHA and OSHA dutifully complies by saying, look, if you're any company with more than 99 employees, you've got to fire everyone who hasn't been vaccinated. And if you don't fire them, we're going to issue crippling fines, fines that would cripple literally any company, not just in America, but in the oh, yeah. world. We, we, we looked at those and we had to make a decision as a business. Well, it's Father's Day. And trust me, if you're going to get your dad's socks, all men want three things in socks, comfort, durability and never having to worry about any of that stuff again. It's kind of a life philosophy. This year's uh, this year, dad's got enough on his plate. Uh, he's got enough ties, flashlights. Why not get him socks? And I don't mean ordinary socks. That's as bad as a flashlight or a tie. I mean, grip, grip six socks. They're comfortable. They're durable. And best of all, they're made here in America. These this came as a surprise to me. They're all wool. I thought I knew what a wool sock was like, and I would never have said this because they're um, they are moisture wicking, I think is what they call. I wear them all the time, but in the summer, I would never think put on a wool sock. These are great, and they're knitted on special machines that make them thinner than traditional wool socks, and they're made from a fine micron wool, which means they don't itch. They're really comfortable, lifetime guarantee, Grip6. You can find them now. Just go to Grip6.com slash Beck. Grip6.com slash Beck. So let me go back to, you know, the one thing that Donald Trump told me, he said, uh, I knew I would, you know, not be popular. I knew I'd have to fight. He said, but I didn't realize I was going to fight for my life and my family's life every day from every side. Now, part of that is, I mean, he likes confrontation. You know what I mean? Um, I think he lives on that, that he thrives on that. Um, However, he had no idea about the deep state. And this is all the administrative arms. And they don't care. They don't care who's elected president. And I thought, how are we going to get past all of this? And I thought, first, Commerce Clause. Do we get, can we get a good case in front of the Supreme Court? But the RAINS Act is the way to do it. The RAINS Act is the way to do it. This is a legislative proposal that's very simple. Its purpose is elegant. 
put lawmaking power back in the hands of elected representatives? Because this is something in the Constitution. The framers never they thought everybody would be so jealous of their power that no branch would give their power up. Right. 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 They didn't foresee the day when the elected federal lawmaker would decide, you know, what I really want to do is skate through uh, an easy next election. And it's easier to get reelected perpetually if you're not the one actually making many laws because laws are controversial. So we'll just make other lawmakers instead of making laws. They didn't foresee that. That broke the circuit. That, that got rid of the circuit breaker on the Congress protecting its own power. Because you don't, they're not using the power of the purse. Exactly. Which is the way to stop it because we don't have a budget anymore. Right. Right. And then they're, they're not having to make the laws. So what the hell are we even hiring these people for? It's an excellent question. And, and that's why we need the RAINS Act. The RAINS Act would say whenever these new executive branch regulations come out that are just federal laws, they shouldn't be self-executing. They shouldn't take effect unless or until both houses of Congress have affirmatively enacted them into law. But see, all these things, Glenn, the erosion of our Bill of Rights, the creation of other rights that are not rights at all, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, resulting in the taking of innocent human life, the erosion of federalism and separation of powers are rights. They're all part of the same thing. They are all the outgrowth. They are all the consequences that we're living with from FDR's desire to pack the Supreme Court in 1937. That effort failed. And this, this is why I wrote Saving Nine. It's about so much more than court packing. Wrote Saving Nine because all of this ties back to that. We're still living today with what happened then when he tried to pack the court. He failed But he succeeded in scaring Owen Roberts, Justice Owen Roberts, enough to change the Constitution. Ever since then, we've been living with it. Think of it this way. $31 trillion in debt. We have regulatory compliance costs that cost the American economy, hardworking Americans, uh, more than $2 trillion every year. Everything you buy is more expensive because of those regs. Most Americans work for many weeks, in many cases, many months out of every year just to pay their federal taxes. It's about half the year. About half the year. All of this is the result of FDR's failed court packing plan. Failed legislatively, succeeded in every other way. So really, Obamacare is the same failure. The court stopping that. Yes. Because John Roberts, we know, was afraid of tainting the court or having troubles or having people lose uh, faith in the court. That's right. That he rewrote it himself, which is not their job. John Roberts, and uh, I was raised to always refer to them by their title. I should say Chief Justice Roberts. But in this instance, he was not acting as Chief Justice, even while claiming to be. He was acting as John Roberts, the guy, because he took lawmaking power. He rewrote Obamacare, not once, but twice, in order to save it from two independently fatal constitutional abnormalities, that either of which should have sunk it. This is the, the same legacy that, that really is the Came consequence from the first, of the, the first, first Roberts. Exactly, right. exactly. It's the same legacy. They're, they're more concerned about preserving what they view as the court's institutional rep, re, reputation. But the, the, the problem is, is nothing has a reputation anymore because no one stands for anything. Mike, and, and you know what's so crazy is you're seeing this. You see this in, in your own race. 
you are the most rational, reasonable guy I know. It's so easy to predict what you're going to be for and what you're going to be against. Because politics doesn't play a role with you. Not that I've seen. It doesn't play a role with you. You know, oh, this one's going to cost me. You know what I mean? But you stick to the Constitution. That's why I think you have a decent reputation. Um, nobody else seems to be doing that. And, and you are under attack in Salt Lake like crazy yep. from, from a media that is owned by the church both of us go to. And they're calling you a radical. And yep. I don't know how, <laughs> Mike, I, I, no offense, you've never been a radical. You, at, what was it, nine, you said to your dad, wait a minute, that should be a legislation. That's not a radical. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think that's radical to, to try to support that document and those set of rules that have protected the American people for nearly two and a half centuries. It's, it's not radical. But yeah, in many places, look, our, our, our media establishment in this country is run by the left. In Utah, it's particularly acute because we're a pretty conservative state. We're a state yeah. inhabited by uh, between three and three and a half million people who love and revere this country and the Constitution. And yet, with the exception of um, uh, uh, two radio talk show hosts, uh, uh, my friend Boyd Matheson and 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 our our mutual friend Rod Arquette, mm -hmm. two radio talk show hosts. Other than that, our entire media establishment in Utah leans solidly to the left. Yeah, Print, not liberal. broadcast, television, radio, yeah. the whole bit. Not just liberal, but solidly progressive. Right. And uh, that's uh, it makes things tough. That's why I, I'm glad you exist. I'm glad there are a handful of people nationally who can still amplify the truth and are still willing to stand up for the Constitution, even when, especially when it's difficult. I will tell you, though, that, I mean, we need to be able to count on somebody standing up in media. And I don't know if it's, you know, you just uh, keep going to the barrel for the new apples, the new journalists. It's too late. I, I, I'm working right now with some um, people just to just a question, what are we doing? You know, we, we are the industry, the entertainment industry keeps getting either the people who couldn't make it or had the spine to stand up. And that's few and far between uh, or the people who are really accomplished that don't have anything to lose anymore. You know what I mean? We have to go to the tree. And we have to start training those people. And I hear from people in the media all the time, Glenn, you got to hire the journalist. Why? Why? If you know it's poison, why? There are other people who can speak truth. There are other people who know how to write, who mm -hmm. don't come from that tree. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the advantages of uh, these innovations in technology that we've seen in recent years. Mm -hmm. uh, there are now other ways of disseminating truth that don't necessarily require a printing press, that don't necessarily require all the things that you used to have in order to speak truth to mm -hmm. the masses. But it's one of the reasons why you've seen efforts by uh, Google and Facebook and, and Twitter and other entities to uh, sort of snuff out 
uh, uh, sure. take out the oxygen uh, from those entities. But it's also why I'm so disappointed in organizations like the Deseret News. You know better, A. Your owners at least know better. Uh, and uh, why aren't you going to the tree? Right, right. And a lot of people don't question them because if they believe in their owner's ability to discern truth, yeah. they'll assume that that discernment transfers uh, to the owned entity, Correct. which it does not. Um, okay. Um, let's just go over a couple of things here before we wrap it up. The What's coming this summer? First of all, we will see a decision by the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, an abortion ruling between now and the end of June. I personally wish uh, that the court had issued its immediately. ruling immediately. I, I, I don't think the sun should have gone down the next yeah. day yeah, I agree. before they issued at least a per curiam unsigned order saying, here's the result, Rose overturned, full opinions to follow later. Your guess? Uh, my guess is June 30th, because decisions like these tend to be drawn out until the last weekday in the month of June. The, the court adjourns. Uh, that the way they can get out of town. That way they can <laughs> get out of town. But the really controversial ones are always drawn out because the way the court works, you know, you don't issue an opinion until every justice is comfortable signing on to whatever opinion he or she will sign on to at the end of the day. Your gut tells you which direction? Five to four, possibly six to three in support of Justice Alito's opinion. Six to three? It, Chief Justice Roberts could end up joining it. I hope and uh, that he will. I think that he certainly should. Justice Alito's opinion is correct. Well, Anyone? I hope that I can get together a flying monkey army like the witch did in Wizard of Oz, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> it could happen. You look at the questions that Chief Justice Roberts asked at oral argument on December 1st of last year in the Dobbs case. They indicate, along with other things we've seen from him, he does know the difference between mm. legitimate constitutional analysis and made up policy agenda uh, 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 material that was sort of passed off as constitutional jurisprudence. OK, so they issue it. Are we going to find out? Are they going to punish the person that leaked? Because I, I believe and I think you believe absolutely they know by now yeah, they yeah. have to know. I think they know. I, I think they haven't told us yet, in part because uh, they don't want to uh, shine too much of a spotlight. Do you think they've on even told means. anybody in in the inside with the trust? I heard Justice Thomas the other day. He said we're forever changed because we don't have trust now. Oh yeah, look, this is this is going to have uh, lasting consequences uh, and not pleasant ones. There's always a, an air of trust. When I clerked at the Supreme Court. There was an air of trust between the justices with the law clerks, free flow of information and exchange of ideas. It was good. It was a good thing. Not everyone always agreed, but but it got to better outcomes, better opinions that were sharper because Correct. of that dialogue. This will be harmed by that. The uh, some of the other cases that are coming out, ones on guns, dramatic yeah. case on guns, right? Right. It's Bigger than the Heller case. I, I, I think it could end up being as big as possibly bigger than the Heller case, uh, at least in the sense that it, um, it has the potential to be a case that if decided the way I think the court will decide it, will allow the Heller case to finally have its full impact. In other words, in this case that's pending in front of the Supreme Court, uh, state uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, the state of New York tried to 
take the Second Amendment right to bear arms and limit it to those people whom the state deemed sufficiently in need of guns to justify it, giving the state sweeping subjective discretionary powers to decide, okay, Glenn, you may have a gun. Yeah, you, you, people don't like you, and uh, uh, so we can have a gun. But he might turn to Stu or, or Pat, the same state official in New York, and say, no, you don't really need it that much. You're not as well known. Uh, just, um, you know, be careful and uh, try to wear a helmet when you're mm-hmm. outside. That's the kind of sweeping power they gave him. Now, I, along with a number of my colleagues, submitted a friend of the court or amicus curiae brief, uh, written by a fantastic lawyer named Gene Scher, a mentor of mine, making the case that the Second Amendment doesn't give that discretion to a state. In fact, the whole point of the Second Amendment was to make a deal. So the Second Amendment, as incorporated against the states by the 14th Amendment, says that that negotiation, that um, balancing of interests has already been struck. The founding fathers knew when they wrote this, they wrote the Second Amendment and when they ratified the 14th Amendment a long time later, they knew that there are safety interests, that this is a balancing of interests, mm-hmm. that, yes, yeah, some bad things will happen if we let people have guns, but that on balance, it's better if you let them have guns. I think the court is going to amplify these sentiments. It's going to embrace them and it's going to ultimately empower the Heller decision. Um, when you look at. Um, the state of the world, the power of the public-private partnership now that we're in, ESG, um, the Federal Reserve, the idea of a Fed coin, all of these things that are really, truly at our doorstep, people who aren't paying attention think that it's, oh, yeah, well, that's, uh, no, it's here. Um And um, if, God forbid, we go into an emergency on food, energy, or war, which all are at least, maybe not likely, but very well could happen. um, How do do we brace for this, Mike? How How do we get past an emergency like this? Intact. First of all, we have to remember the risks of emergencies. My wife has two fundamental tenets that uh, I believe in. My wife, Sharon, is very wise. Um, All socialism starts out as emergency socialism, Mm -hmm. and socialism is never for the socialist. Mm -hmm. We have to be aware of these grave risks that we face if we run headlong into that. Next, we have to remember that sometimes the only thing standing between us and the dangers associated with the excessive accumulation of power in the hands of the few. And all of the things you just described, these emergency sweeping actions in response to this or that crisis, they all have that in common. The best bulwark we have against that is sometimes the courts, the Supreme Court in particular. And in order to exercise those powers, to be that control rod that steps in and says, no, we're not going to let this proceed because this violates about 10 different features of our Constitution. You've got to have an independent federal judiciary. Mm-hmm. This is not merely an academic exercise. This is one of the reasons why we've been the biggest economic powerhouse the world has ever known. It's we also, have an independent court system. Right. And it's also why our Constitution, the average length of a Constitution for any country is 17 years. Right. 
Right. Not ours. <laughs> 235 years. Yeah. And, and, and it's worked. It, it's, and regardless of whether you, you believe, like I do, that it was written by wise men, raised up by God to that very purpose, it works. So, but in order for it to continue working, we have to have an independent federal judiciary. The court packing plan that the left is pushing, President Biden, many of my Democratic colleagues in the Senate, most of them, in fact, and their counterparts in the House, uh, it is there to destroy that and to consolidate power. We can't let that happen. Even if it fails legislatively this time, as it did with FDR in 1937, it will leave another lasting mark, one that could saddle us with something else horrible, just as it did last time when FDR tried this. And that's why I wrote Saving Nine. But always we have to keep in the front of our minds that we shouldn't trust government. Government is not a deity. It doesn't have eyes with which to see you, arms with which to embrace you, or a heart to love you. Government is just power. It's just force. And it's got to be controlled. That's why these separation of powers, that's why these, all these protections in the Constitution matter, and they're not just academic. Mike Lee, thank you. Thank you. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 